On July 30, 1945, the largest naval disaster in U.S. history occurred when a Japanese torpedo struck the USS Indianapolis. Over the course of four days, 890 survivors drifted aimlessly through shark-infested waters. At the end, only 316 will return home alive. What happened to the ship? And what was the fate of most of its crew? Find out on this week's episode of Narcosis Into the Deep. Hi everyone, I'm your host Alex and welcome back to Narcosis Into the Deep. This week, we'll be discussing the tragedy of the USS Indianapolis and how such a devastating event could occur. But let's not waste any time and go ahead and dive into this week's episode. The USS Indianapolis was built in 1930 with a primary goal to combat Japanese naval forces. It was one of the largest flagship vessels at the time, at 610 feet long, or 186 meters long. This massive ship cost nearly $11 million to create, which is over $180 million today, and could hold a crew of 1,269 people. Affectionately known as Indy by its crew, this ship was fitted with high-caliber turrets that could fire up to 17 miles or 27.4 kilometers away, along with anti-aircraft technology, a conning tower, and several barbettes. This ship weighed close to 11 tons, but could still travel at top speeds of 37.6 miles per hour or 60.6 kilometers per hour. The Indianapolis was so powerful that it had been involved in 10 major battles during the course of World War II. The Indianapolis shot down at least nine enemy planes, fired thousands of rounds at hundreds of targets ashore, and even suffered a kamikaze attack during a pre-invasion bombardment of Okinawa. During the Battle of Okinawa, at this point in the war, many of the more advanced Japanese pilots had already died, leaving the job to young and inexperienced members of the Japanese Navy, most of who were around the age of 19. Because of this, the ship was able to make it out of the battle, though at the time it was badly damaged. Although the kamikaze attack damaged the ship extensively and took the lives of nine naval men, it was a kamikaze torpedo used by the Japanese submarines that destroyed the USS Indianapolis. These torpedoes, known as the Kaiten, were 60 feet or 18 meters long and held one man who self-propelled in a kamikaze attempt. Because there was no way back once launched, if a torpedo missed its target, the pilot would be forced to either self-destruct or simply sink into the black depths to meet a slow fate of suffocation. The ship was especially vulnerable to the chitin because the ship was built for speed, range, and firepower. The ship's armor was very thin and was considered tin class as opposed to iron class. The chitin were built to break larger and stronger ships, so when the Indianapolis was faced with a chitin, it stood no chance. The USS Indianapolis was essentially a glass cannon. 
Because of its vulnerability, a destroyer ship would typically accompany the Indianapolis as an escort. However, because the captain of the Indianapolis, Charles B. McVeigh III, was under the impression that there were no Japanese submarines between their current location and their destination in the Philippines, the captain made the fatal error of choosing to go on their own. On top of this, the ship was also on a top-secret mission at the time, making it even more difficult for anyone to help them. The operation that they were on was so secret that Captain McVeigh and his crew had no idea what they were transporting, only that its importance was paramount. Captain McVeigh reportedly told his crew, quote, I can't tell you what the mission is. I don't even know myself. But I've been told that every day we take off this trip is a day off the war." End quote. Towards the end of their top-secret mission, which was actually to deliver the internal components for the Little Boy atomic bomb, which was later dropped on Hiroshima, a Japanese naval commander named Makichiro Hashimoto was sent to patrol the waters between Guam and the Philippines. This is where the USS Indianapolis was now headed, unbeknownst to the dangers coming their way. Because Captain McVeigh was under the impression that there were no enemy submarines in the water, his ship was not traveling in a zigzag pattern. This pattern was meant to make it more difficult for submarines to hit them, since submarines are mostly stationary when striking. But, since he was lacking the information that a submarine was in the same waters, Captain McVeigh had the Indianapolis going in a straight line. That's when Hashimoto spotted the ship alone, an easy target, and launched six separate torpedoes ensuring at least one would hit the Indianapolis. At 12.15am on July 30th, 1945, one of Hashimoto's torpedoes struck the Indianapolis starboard bow, instantly killing dozens of men. The starboard bow was almost torn off completely, and the ship immediately began taking on water. These torpedoes, known as a Type 95, were built to destroy large ships in two parts, piercing the ship's exterior while the warhead burrowed deeper into the ship, causing massive damage. The initial torpedo didn't destroy the ship outright, but a second torpedo was launched and struck the aviation fuel storage, causing a massive explosion that burned all men in the area to death, and in the process, released a massive oil slick on the ocean's surface. The ship began taking on even more water after the second torpedo hit. In a desperate attempt to prevent taking on more water, the men were forced to begin closing certain sections of the ship, leaving others to sadly drown in the inescapable portions of the decks. Captain McVeigh, who had seen the ship through other dangerous circumstances, was unaware that the ship was already doomed. At this point, all communication was down, and the general SOS sent out was sent in such a stressed time that no coordinates were given and no one was around to hear their call. As the ship's crew delved into chaos, survivors began to release lifeboats while others simply dove overboard. But because the ship's propellers were still forcing the ship forward, many of the men were pushed two miles away from the ship, 
The USS Indianapolis capsized and sank within just 12 minutes after the initial torpedo hit, with some 300 sailors and marines still on board. The 890 men who survived were left in the fuel-soaked waters of the aftermath of the sinking ship. Now in open waters, in the pure darkness of night, the survivors' panic increased as they knew they were stranded. On top of this already terrible situation, many of the men were severely wounded from the attack, leaving pools of blood in the water attracting the sharks that were present in the area. Because the men were spread over two miles, many of the smaller groups of men were under the impression that they were the only survivors. While the larger groups with lifeboats had so many people, some were forced to simply tread the water next to the raft because there was simply no more room to hold them. Amidst the chaos, some officers were able to tie lines to the men floating in the ocean to keep them close. However, several of the life rafts sunk when men began to panic and attempted to scrape their way out of the water. Although many of the men had swallowed seawater and oil, the officers directed them to prevent vomiting as a means of securing fluids, because they didn't know whether or not they would receive any aid. In the first pitch-black night, the men could only cover their ears as they began to hear the sounds of their screaming comrades who were dragged down by the sharks. By the first morning, the survivors had drifted 10 miles away and were now in a few groups led by officers Glenn Morgan, Fenton Outland, and Richard Redmayne. The groups of men who had nothing but life jackets had lost one-third of their men, and because they were so tightly strung together, the survivors were surrounded by the floating corpses of their peers. Many of these men died from dehydration, shock, or perished from the initial injuries during the attack. Of the surviving groups, Captain McVeigh was the most well-off, as his group only had nine men, and they had a life raft, a sheet of canvas they used to collect rainwater, some brackish water, morphine, and enough rations to last them ten days. Unfortunately, for the men who were floating with nothing but life jackets, they would soon be victims to the six different species of sharks that hunted in these waters. Although sharks normally avoid humans altogether, the combination of blood and corpses caused these sharks to come in droves and began a feeding frenzy that would devastate many of the already exhausted survivors. Although there were multiple species of sharks in the area, the one most credited with the attacks is the oceanic white tip. The white tip shark was already known for its aggression, but under these circumstances, this led to an even more violent nature. White tips are typically lone hunters. Because of this increase in quote-unquote food, the sharks began to hunt in groups aided by the fact that they could smell blood in the waters from up to a quarter mile away. To make matters worse, U.S. naval communication had heard Hashimoto's interference that he struck an enemy ship and sank it, but the U.S. Navy thought that they had all ships accounted for. They checked them off a list as they arrived to their destination, and because of the war and excess communication, no one was the wiser when the Indianapolis hadn't arrived. 
the USS Indianapolis was completely forgotten, ensuring that these men would likely to never make it back to shore. Even if by some miracle the communication had come through, the men had already drifted 20 miles further away from the now-sunk wreck. Now, it's important to reiterate here that the military was unaware of the location of the ship, and because of the limited technology at the time, any contact other than a random SOS, which would not reach very far, would not be able to discern the gravity of the situation. After nearly a full day in the water, the sharks began to attack en masse. In one case, a man was attacked by a white tip, but managed to fight it off as he was being dragged underwater. Upon his return to the surface, he was already bleeding profusely from the attack and tried desperately to board a nearby raft. But his fellow men, knowing his wounds would attract even more predators, punched and kicked at him to prevent him from coming on board and further endangering them, leaving this man to his death. Some men, including Captain McVeigh and his group, managed to keep their sanity. They were often helping those who were injured by offering their own life jackets and what little medical attention they could. The more desperate groups, however, began to lose all sense of humanity. These men, who had little to no rations, some as few as a cracker a day, began to attack and kill their comrades. Some began to find and hoard what resources they could, while others outright murdered one another. One of these smaller groups, led by Officer Buck Gibson, witnessed a group of men who had found a storage unit containing rotten potatoes. Those who found the supply hoarded the rotten food for themselves, willing to consume anything that could potentially keep them alive just a little bit longer. Officer Fenton Outland's group, which had attached their rafts together, began to notice that the two rafts were bumping into each other, causing friction, which had the potential to destroy both rafts. As Fenton realized this, he ordered the men on his raft to untie the other, leaving the group to become separated and drift apart in the lonely sea. Meanwhile, in Officer Richmond Redmond's larger group, Redman had completely lost his mind in a state of delirium by the start of day two. Survivors recall him screaming, quote, I need to get to the engine room, end quote. With the sanity of their superior collapsed, the rest of the group delved into a state of primal madness. At this point, Redman's group had lost most of their rafts and were forced to clutch onto floater nets, but this did little to save them as the weight on the nets caused them to sink. Combined with being overweight, there were waves up to 19 feet or 5.8 meters tall crashing onto them, making it even more difficult to keep their heads above water. Yet the group who had the most trouble, led by Corporal Edgar Harrell, had no rafts and no life jackets. His group of men were forced to tread water through the entire duration of the disaster. Many of these men were so dehydrated that their tongues began to swell and many in their frayed minds began drinking seawater, taking in more salt. This excess of salt led to seizures, vomiting, and kidney failure. 
One group finally began to succumb to group hallucinations by the third day. This group believed that the Indianapolis had not sunk, and they swam out away from the groups only to drown, attempting to board the hallucinated ship. In a state of pure delirium, some men in Redmond's group inexplicably reached an animalistic fever. Some began to attack and kill another with their survival knives. All the while, sharks in the waters continued to eat and bite at them. At this point, the group, which initially consisted of 200 men, dropped to only 40. As their sanity broke, some men even resorted to outright cannibalism. Those who had kept a fragment of their sanity agreed to kill those who had gone beyond any state of reason. These men then felt forced to execute their friends, but they were men who they deemed too dangerous to keep around. But finally, almost four days later, an aircraft piloted by Lieutenant Gwen spotted an oil slick from his plane. Hope had finally reached the men. Over the course of the next few days, planes were sent in to collect the survivors, taking in those with more severe wounds first. They began taking the men back 52 at a time, and the last survivors were saved on August 8, 1945. At the end of the ordeal, 300 men died in the initial torpedo attack, while 579 men perished in the water. Many of the survivors had such extreme PTSD that they vowed they would never go near the ocean again, including some who were even scared to the point that they wouldn't even take a shower. Of the nearly 1,200-person crew on board at the time of the attack, only 316 survived. The Navy immediately made changes to ensure that such an event wouldn't ever happen again. Escorts were required for most warships, reporting procedures for overdue ships were implemented, and all ships were ordered to zigzag at all times for the remainder of the war. The news of the sinking of the Indianapolis was held from the public for some time. On August 6, 1945, the United States dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima, Japan, inflicting nearly 130,000 casualties and destroying more than 60% of the city. On August 9th, a second atomic bomb was dropped on Nagasaki, where casualties were estimated at over 66,000. Meanwhile, the U.S. government kept quiet about the Indianapolis tragedy until August 15th in order to guarantee that the news would be overshadowed by President Harry Truman's announcement that Japan had surrendered. In the aftermath of the events involving the Indianapolis, the ship's commander, Captain Charles McVeigh III, was court-martialed in November 1945 for failing to sail in a zigzag course that would have helped the ship to evade enemy submarines in the area. McVeigh, who was the only Navy captain court-martialed for losing a ship during the war, died by suicide in 1968 while holding a toy sailor in one of his hands. Many of his surviving crewmen believe the military made him a scapegoat, and thankfully, in the year 2000, 55 years after the Indianapolis went down, Congress cleared McVeigh's name.
Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Narcosis Into the Deep. I'm your host, Alex, and if you have any questions, please feel free to ask them on the podcast's Instagram page at NarcosisPod or on our Discord server. Both are linked in the episode's description. Please don't forget to subscribe and rate the podcast. If you want to support the podcast, there's always Patreon or sharing with a friend. Becoming a patron comes with many benefits, such as voting on what to hear next, exclusive updates, discounts on merchandise, and more. Thank you so much to my newest patron, Deborah W. Your support tremendously helps the podcast, and I'm so glad to have you here on this journey with me. Thanks again, and I'll see you all next week.